Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunrise. Welcome to you guys here in the service out in the lobby. Welcome to you guys worshiping with us online this morning. Welcome to Sunrise. My name is Dan Dupuy. I'm the worship director here at Sunrise. It's so good to have you here worshiping with us. Well, this Sunday is the fourth Sunday in Advent. And oftentimes when celebrating Advent, um, we light candles in an Advent wreath. We've actually done that in years past, but we're not doing that this time. But um, the fourth candle that is typically lit is the angel candle, and it represents peace. Um, so that name actually comes from when the angels announced Jesus' birth and Him bringing peace and coming to bring peace to our hearts and to our world. So hear this scripture from Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So may our hearts be filled with peace this morning as we sing and as we offer up our worship. So why don't you guys stand with us as we sing together. Oh, oh, oh. 
Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven Of his love. I sing, he rules again. He 
heaven and nature sing, and heaven, heaven, nature This is our time, a great and humble king. 
You guys can be seated. Good morning. My name is Carissa, and I just want to welcome you to Sunrise this morning. As Dan said, on this final Sunday of Advent, our last Sunday before Christmas, I know our house is excited because I'm a teacher, and our kids are all in school, and we're on break. And I think most people around here are now as, as well. So that's a reason to celebrate also. Um, but it is great to be together this morning. If you are here visiting for the first time, we really want to just extend a special welcome and invite everybody, but especially if you're here for the first time, to scan the QR code that is on a chair in front of you. Um, you'll see links to all the announcements that I'm about to share about, but also there's a form that you can fill out just so that we can say welcome and thanks for visiting. Um, also, you can stop at the Connect table in the lobby after the service, and someone will be there to, again, answer any questions you may have, but also give you a gift and just say thank you for being here. Uh, if you are watching online for the first time, then there should be a link that gets posted in the comments section. So please click on that link and you'll be able to find that information and we can send a gift your way to say thank you for joining us. Um, we do have some exciting events coming up, especially just in this next week that I want to draw your attention to. First up, this Friday is Christmas Eve, and last year we started a new tradition of having an outdoor service, and we're going to continue that this Friday. It will start at 4.30 right in the front lawn. Um, if you didn't notice when you came in this morning, there's a great big Christmas tree out there. Uh, the Christmas lights will be lit up. If you would like to, you may bring some ornaments for your family to put on the tree. We're going to sing some Christmas songs and just and have a really nice um, kind of informal gathering at 4.30 on Friday. Um, then, I guess this is a little more than a week away, but on December 31st, we are having a noon Year's Eve party. So Penny is putting this together. This is an opportunity for kids and families to celebrate the new year without staying awake until midnight. So that will be here at the church from 11.30 a.m. to noon um, at sunrise. And if you get the emails that get sent out each Sunday, there was a link in that email to sign up. Otherwise, you can, um, again, go to that comments or the uh, QR code in front of you and get all that information or just go to our Sunrise page. And then also on New Year's Eve, um, something really exciting. I know Dan is really excited about this. It's, yeah, just going to be a neat thing on New Year's Eve from noon until midnight. We want to have... 12 hours of prayer, and you don't need to come in for all 12 hours, but what we're going to have is half-hour sign-up times, and you can sign up for a time slot, and you can just pray wherever you want to, from your home, in your closet, outside, whatever. Um, if you sign up, you'll also get some information, some different prompts to help guide you through that time if you want some direction. Dan's even put together a little instrumental playlist if you want some music playing in the background, all sorts of cool things. But we'd really love to fill that whole 12-hour time slot with the 24 different slots. So um, there's more information, or if you are an in-person kind of pencil and paper person, there will be a physical sign-up in the lobby after the service as well. 
Right now, we get to have a short little message um, from Dan and from the whole Fisher family just to give an update and I think a little Merry Christmas wish. So we'll take a look. Hey, Sunrise. It's been a little while since I've been able to see you guys. Just wanted to give you a quick update. I am recovering well from surgery. The recovery is going slowly, but as it should be. Uh, having made it through the time on the narcotics and through the withdrawals, I've been able to get up and walk for a while, and so that has been good. And I stopped by the office today just to hang out a little bit with the staff and to send you this note. Uh, I am really thankful for all of the work that our elders, our directors, and that Noah Matice have been doing over the last several weeks. Uh, for the guest speakers who have been here, thank you very much. Uh, this has been an unpredictable, but a great Advent season because of the collaborative work of so many folks. Hey, we've got a Christmas Eve gathering coming up here in just the next few days, and uh, I wanna invite you guys to be there. We're gonna gather outside at 4.30. We're gonna decorate the Christmas tree like we did last year and uh, celebrate Christmas Eve. So the Fishers, Hope that you're doing well. We love you guys. We are excited to be back with you as soon as we are able. Uh, Merry Christmas, and we'll see you soon. All right. And right now, I would like to welcome up Trisha Bosma. She is here with us this morning to bring the word, um, specifically from Luke 1, as we continue our series of Advent. Um, she is in her final year of her Master of Divinity at Calvin. I know you said you get to graduate this spring. I do. So very exciting. And accepted a position as chaplain I did. At Spectrum. Just this week, I began a, a, a position at chaplain, uh, chaplain at Spectrum Health. That's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, welcome. We're glad Thanks. you're here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be here and to share uh, with you in this Christmas season and uh, some of the joy um, and sorrows that are involved in that season. So let me just get situated here. Oh, my Bible's heavy. I'll hold it. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, I am going to read from Luke chapter 1 a little bit later in the, the uh, chapter. I wanted to begin, though, just by setting the scene as to what is happening at the beginning of this chapter so that we're all on the same page. So in Luke 1, um, we are told of two angelic visits and just uh, as many, if not more, miracles that happen all in one chapter. The first angelic visit happens to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. And he is told that he and his wife, who are both old, very old, that they would have a child. And the miracle of that birth was, frankly, that she was beyond childbearing years, yet she would have a child. And they would parent John the Baptist. The second angelic visit, though, was to a young woman, Mary. 
and that she too was going to have a child. The miracle of that birth was that she was unmarried. She was a virgin. She had never been with a man. So there was no way that she could get pregnant. Yet God would come upon her and would impregnate her. We call that the Immaculate Conception. Another miracle. Now the crazy thing is that Mary and Elizabeth are relatives, distant cousins, we think. And Mary went to visit Elizabeth when she was about six months pregnant, and Mary was just newly pregnant. And that is where we're going to pick up this story in Luke 1, beginning at verse 39 and reading to 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And then Mary responded with her song. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of my humble state From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but yet has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Well, as I mentioned, I I did begin a new position this week at Spectrum Health. And already this week, I had a chance to visit with a patient. She was there to have surgery, and 
she had requested to see a chaplain. And as I entered her room, I was greeted by a very chipper voice. Oh, hi. It's good to see you. And she seemed really good. And I kind of wondered what the nature of this visit would be. I settled in to a chair and we began to talk. And it didn't take long for that facade of that chipper greeting to crack and crumble. And she broke down into tears, weeping. And beyond the tears, she began to apologize profusely for her tears and for the burden that she perceived herself to be. That burden that she perceived herself to be is the burden of this broken world that we all live in. And personally, her broken world included years of her body not functioning the way that it was supposed to. It seemed to be letting her down over and over again. She had endured many surgeries. The hospital was a familiar place for her. But during our visit, she also named this burden of being a part of a Christian community, which she felt like was so unsavory at times, fighting and bickering over community health issues and human dignity challenges. But she also named the sorry state of the humanistic hallmark interpretation of Christmas joy. Seriously, it can leave you dejected and exhausted from striving toward this unattainable perfection. And as my dear patient sat weeping in her hospital bed, indeed, her, she was suffering in multiple ways, but spiritually, she was suffering shame. Shame that her middle-aged body, which should still be able and vibrant, was broken. And the prognosis for the rest of her adult life was admittedly a bit unattractive. Shame that the institution of church, which we all belong to and we all contribute to, can be sometimes such a poor image of the body of Christ. And shame that she doesn't measure up to the cultural standards of beautifully decorated Christmas cookies or a hearth that's warm and bright. Her tears revealed the depth of her fear of that brokenness. And that dear, precious patient who sat before me, desperately trying to get her tears under control, I wondered what would happen if she actually took a deep dive into the darkness of her shame. What would happen if she were to confront 
the darkness of her complete unworthiness. Today in our passage, we meet another woman who is confronted with the darkness of her unworthiness. Historically, Mary has been revered as someone who has great faith and she's humble and she's upright. But undoubtedly, when you know the backstory, she surely wept tears also for the burden of her unworthiness. You see, Mary's own song ventures to name her shame. If you, if you look for it, it's there. In various Bible translations, it's referred to in a couple different ways. It's that humble state or that lowliness. The shame of Mary lies just below the surface of this glorious, spontaneously erupting song from Mary. Now, the historic theologian John Calvin, he addresses Mary's shame in his evaluation of this text. He states this, She was of no account in the eyes of the world. She was a nothing. And her estimation of herself was nothing more. Her estimation, her self-esteem was just as low. Women in her culture held very little standing in their communities, and they had very little to say about what their life was going to be like. They had one choice, be a wife and be a mother. Oh, and who you're going to marry, we've decided that for you too. Indeed, Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. She was engaged. In this culture, women were nothing. And you can't underestimate how that message of nothingness affected their sense of self-esteem. Tim Keller, a modern-day theologian, also addresses this element of her shame. He states, This girl, no more than 15, near the bottom of the social ladder, knew that if she surrendered to what God was asking her, she would go even lower. Yet Mary took that deep dive into her shame. Becoming pregnant out of wedlock, was dripping with profound shame in her community. I kind of have to wonder what those conversations looked like when she told her mother, her father, that she was pregnant. That this was an immaculate conception, I don't think provided a whole lot of recourse for her. Indeed, the story that an angel appeared to you the Holy Spirit overshadowed you and that you became pregnant without any relations with another man, I don't think that would fly. <laughs> Keep in mind that this was a time of 400 years where God had been silent to the people of Israel. These are the intertestament years where God has been silent. I know 
that today that story, if you tried to fly that one and you held to it and you stuck with it, you might end up in a mental health institution. And the whispers that her mother and Mary must have endured were so shaming. Cameron Armstrong, who lives or who um, serves on the International Mission Board in Bucharest, has written several journal entries where she imagined being uh, this story from different perspectives. And in this one, she writes from the perspective of Mary's mother. She says this, Mary insists that Jehovah has a special plan for her and her child. But how am I supposed to say that to my friends at the well tomorrow morning? Every day, they make some sort of comment about how I failed as a mother. And I'm sure they're right. I know my husband thinks this too. I know that is why he's become so dismissive of me. Our home has become so quiet. We hear in this that shame is toxic and it is infectious. It mars our relationships with one another. And Mary herself, imagine the whispers that she endured. Can you believe it, Mary? I thought she was a good girl. It's so disappointing when a good girl falls. Can you believe that story she's telling? Who does she think she is? She's humiliated her family. You see, Mary, by becoming pregnant, has not met the societal expectations of her. Her dignity has been stripped from her within her community. I don't imagine that there's anything that she could have said that would have righted herself. She has become the victim of unjust shame, and it's been assigned to her. Frankly, she's a woman who just needs to be not seen for a while. So she flees. She flees to her distant cousin, Elizabeth, who's old. And she's amazingly with child. But the good news for Mary that we find in this song is that Mary is truly seen even though she feels like she just wants to go and hide and get away. She is truly seen, even in her shame. You see, through the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth sees her. Even with her story and its accompanying shame, Elizabeth sees it for what it really is, this gracious and wonderful work of God. And she calls Mary, she actually calls her blessed. And in Mary's song, we also find out 
that the grace of God is in seeing her too. Our text says that God was mindful of Mary. But in other translations, it sounds like looked upon or looked on with favor. As if God knew that she didn't deserve any favor, but he gave it to her anyway. Now, God asked Mary to be his vessel for the birth of Jesus Christ. Surely, he wouldn't be critical of her for the shame that she endures from other people. Even though shame has the potential to emotionally cripple us in this life, God does not spiritually condemn us for that shame. However, there is another type of shame that Mary experiences in her life. And she's aware of it. The shame of her own unworthiness compared to God's worthiness. Her unholiness compared to God's holiness. She declares God holy in the song, and she recognizes that her own sin leaves her unholy. She is not worthy of God's love and compassion and favor. And she is awed by this. Despite her unworthiness in society's eyes, and despite her unworthiness in God's eyes, she knows that she will be called blessed. Please hear a tone in her voice that says, I can't believe it because I am so far from perfect. But from now on, generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. And then Mary goes on to name other injustices in this world. Injustices that seem to reign more strongly than God's reign sometimes. But she acknowledges that God intends to correct these injustices. The injustices that shame both the victim and also the victimizer. Under the reign of God, you see, both are seen in light of their respective shame. And he desires to do mighty things for both of them, just as he did for Mary. These are the mighty deeds that she sings about. They include thwarting the plans of those who are just arrogantly pride, proud. Mighty deeds of bringing down those who are overly privileged and lifting up the lowly. The mighty deeds of filling the hungry with good things, but yet sending the rich away empty-handed. The good news is that the mighty God of those who suffer any shame God will not leave alone in their misery like Mary. 
I've been talking a lot about shame. Not maybe the type of Christmas message you were hoping for this morning. But there has been a lot written about shame recently. Maybe you've read some things or heard a podcast or, or watched something on YouTube. A quick Google search will reveal many books written on this topic. Brene Brown is a big one right now, and she has a book called Braving the Wilderness. But there's also The Soul of Shame by Kurt Thompson, or Healing the Shame that Binds Us by John Bradshaw. Healing the Core Wound of Unworthiness by Adaya Shante. But I don't want us to negate the value of the book of Luke or the book of the Bible in general to address these issues of shame. You see, Luke, our author today, he was a doctor. He was more scientific in nature. And he took the time to investigate this person called Jesus. And his writing reveals more insight, surprisingly, even as a scientific person, more insight to the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. And more miracles are listed in the book of Luke than any of the other Gospels. Indeed, his purpose for writing this narrative is to reveal that there is an authentically spiritual nature to Jesus and his life and his intentions for this world. His findings highlight the purpose of Jesus in relation to the purpose of this world that we live in. And in Mary's song, we see a glimpse of how she related to the world and how she related to God in both her sin and her shame. I wonder how you experience the brokenness of sin and shame in your world. Through my work as a chaplain at both Pine Rest and now at um, Spectrum Health, I have discovered that the spirits of this world will result in the human soul self-loathing itself to some degree. And that self-hatred, that self-loathing is due to our awareness of our unworthiness and our shame and our sin. And this is, this is um, given as an example even back in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the creation. In perfection, Adam and Eve are fully known by each other and by God, and yet they know no shame. But when sin enters the world, they are seen and they are ashamed. They are sent fleeing into the bushes of the garden to hide themselves because they cannot bear what they are experiencing with themselves. Just like Mary fled to Elizabeth, we all practice fleeing in some capacity. Do you flee into social media 
to try to portray something that's better? Do you flee into Netflix to ease away the hours so you don't have to think about this world? Do you flee into a substance to numb the feelings of that shame and hurt and burden of this world? It may work for a while, but eventually we will find ourselves insufficient and ashamed of who we are and maybe even self-loathing ourselves a bit. We will never measure up. And this world doesn't offer any hope for that problem. Eugene Peterson relates a simple story from his childhood that illustrates this. He, told, he tells the story of one year when his mother decided not to put a Christmas tree up. Now, I can understand that sentiment of not wanting to have that hassle. But for him, the societal expectation from his buddies, that was just too much to bear. He was so ashamed of not meeting this expectation that it caused him further shame by lying and conniving to avoid the truth. He lied to his friends when they would ask about the lack of twinkling lights in their picture window. And he avoided at all costs having his buddies come over lest they find out that there really was no tree anywhere to be found in their home. And he ended up not liking himself for all that he had done, had said, had failed to admit. An investigation into our shame may reveal lies and conniving to keep from being truly seen. Do you retake pictures for the right pose? Retouch your photos before they go up? Do you use a truck or some type of ATV or other type of vehicle to image yourself perfectly as the masculine guy? What do you do to avoid the feelings of shame associated with the reality of who you really are? Where do you flee? What do you do to avoid? What secrets are you hiding? What accusations are you desperately trying to silence? It's endless. It's relentless. And it's fruitless. But it's so different with Jesus, Mary's son. Don't get me wrong, there's still shame. As Mary says in her song, we're still sinful and God is holy. But the good news is that God doesn't condemn us to that misery, that unholiness. God isn't satisfied with leaving us in that miserable state. Even in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were desperately trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves, their efforts were futile. God saw it, but nothing he would do, he would stop at nothing to fix that problem. So he gave Adam and Eve their first set of clothes, animal skins, that would endure a bit better. 
God is not content to leave you in your humiliation, whether that humiliation is from your own sinful actions or whether it's some kind of humiliation that's heaped upon you by our culture and our society. It doesn't matter. God desires more for you, so he sent Jesus. John 3, 16 and 17 say this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse, but the next one is equally as powerful. For God did not send his Son into this world to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. Although we are condemnable, Jesus came to save it and save us. And Christmas celebrates Jesus' glorious purposes for our shame. He redeems it. Praise God. And in John chapter 5, we discover that Jesus already sees us. He already knows us, and he's aware of that deep shame. He says this, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. But do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Jesus knows, and he sees you in all your misery, in all your shame, in all your unworthiness, Yet, we are not accused before our Father in heaven. This reality, washing over your soul and over your spirit, is the true source of Christmas joy. It is through Christ that we are given this place of being fully seen and fully redeemed. So Christmas is one week away. What posture will you take as you approach this most wonderful time of year? Are you trying to suck it up like the patient in the hospital room? Dry your tears and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get through this season? Is your energy going into chipper Christmas greetings that seem to say, I'm good? Or can you honestly look at the ugliness of your shame and yet somehow find the beauty of God in that darkness? And so to say that God is good, therefore I am good. Can you stop trying to manage your shame and just give it over to God and say, I need you to redeem this burden. Let him transform the misery of that reality of who you really are into praise that you can bring to God. This is the posture of praise that Mary brings in her song. It is a posture of Christmas joy, praising God 
from the depths of your unworthiness. Praise given from that unworthiness is the most authentic praise. Because you're turning around and you're looking up at God's holiness and you're going, wow, it's amazing. When we acknowledge our humble, lowly state, God's mercy and holiness and might is so awe-inspiring. It is then and only then that our soul can truly sing because it's been transformed. Shame into righteousness. Misery into joy and praise. And Mary's Magnificat, she opens her whole being to praising God. She says, my soul glorifies God. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He is worthy of that wholehearted praise for what he has done for you, for me, for this world. Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, you came into this world despite being it being so full of unworthiness. You became the son of a lowly, unwed mother. You came unwelcomed in a barn surrounded by dirty animals. Perfection amid imperfection. Holiness amid unholiness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you have seen us in our deep need, and you have not left us in our misery. Convict us of our shame and soften our hearts toward you, that our souls and our spirits may sing your praises. And may, God, this Christmas joy invade all of our days and not just this Christmas season so that you may be praised now and forevermore. Amen. We're going to continue in worship by singing, by praising with this last song. Um, we'll also use this time to give of our tithes and offerings. Um, and you can do that if you'd like to during the song um, in the bucket in the back on that little table between the doors, or you can scan the QR code. Um, but let's continue in a worshipful mindset and let's sing together Christmas offering.
wise men seeking truth traveled from afar, hoping to find the child from heaven, falling on their knees, they bowed before the
If you find yourself wanting to investigate deeper Christmas joy found in praising God from the depths of a misery, I invite you to come forward and receive prayers with some leaders from this church. Abraham called God El Shaddai in the Old Testament, which means mighty God. Centuries later, Mary called God the mighty one who has done great things. It is that same mighty God who sees you and sets you free from all that binds you. So go with Christmas joy, knowing that El Shaddai is at your side. Go in peace.